Welcome to UNSW Canberra's podcast series, Navigating Uncertainty. Today's podcast is on the topic of fighting Afghanistan's drug war. In such tumultuous and unpredictable times, we believe that careful work in the humanities and social sciences can shed light on many of our current challenges and help us to chart ways forward. This podcast is sponsored by the Asia-Pacific Development and Security Research Group and has been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. UNSW Canberra acknowledges their elders past and present and that sovereignty has never been ceded. I'm your host, Pishamon Yopantong, and in this episode, I am joined by Gareth Rice, a former Australian Army officer who served in Afghanistan and is currently undertaking a Master of Research at UNSW Canberra. Please note that in this podcast, Gareth is speaking in a private capacity. Thanks so much for joining us today, Gareth. I've been following your research for some time now, and you seem to have a proclivity for challenging and thorny topics. You've researched, I believe, everything from the inner workings of rebel groups and organized crime to the challenges faced by Western governments seeking to counter non-traditional security threats. I understand that in your current project, you are looking at how the NATO coalition understands and has attempted to counter insurgency and the illicit drug trade in Afghanistan. That's really fascinating. Would you be able to tell us more about what sparked your interest in this research area? Yeah, sure. Well, firstly, um, thanks for having me. Uh, So for me, uh, this story goes back to Anzac Day on 2012. Uh, I was on my first deployment to Afghanistan. uh, And being Anzac Day, I was out in a uh, remote patrol base and playing a game of two-up with some of my soldiers. Uh, And we had a US platoon that was kind of uh, sharing the base with us. And they had kind of taken over security. So they had a patrol at the back of the uh, patrol base. And uh, as I'm playing a game of two-up with my soldiers, this US platoon comes under attack from small arms and RPG fire. Uh, So we stood two uh, to support that platoon, and that platoon started to withdraw back to the base. But as I was standing two to support them, I remember thinking that this was a bit unusual for the Taliban. Uh, Normally, you would have to patrol kind of deep into the remote villages before they would attack you in that kind of way, uh, because it's exposing them. Uh, So that didn't quite make sense. And later that day, we received a intelligence report that indicated that the Taliban had attacked that US platoon in order to stop us from conducting poppy eradication. And again, this didn't really make much sense because not only had we never done poppy eradication, uh, we certainly had no plans to. So it raised a few questions for me pretty early on in my tour about, one, why would they expose themselves uh, to protect, uh, them, uh, protect these drugs? Uh, and what was their kind of connection uh, to that drug trade? And those kind of questions lingered uh, with me throughout that tour. Uh, we would spend a lot of time walking through these fields of endless uh, drugs of poppy and uh, marijuana. And it seemed to me to be to almost the centre of gravity of the insurgency and the root of a lot of the problems that we were seeing in Afghanistan. But at the same time, it was almost like this elephant in the room that we weren't really talking about because we didn't have a mandate to do anything about it. So fast forward to 2019, when I had the opportunity to do some research with UNSW, I thought this would be a great topic to kind of um, look into. Uh, And I've been researching it ever since. Well, we'll definitely have to dig into the drug trade element in all of this. But I mean, at a a time when there is plenty of controversy surrounding Afghanistan and in light of the announced withdrawal of troops by September this year, why is it important for us to understand and take note of these issues? I guess the first thing I would highlight is that in September, that will mark the end of a 20-year war for us, but it won't mark the end of the war for the Afghan people. 
Uh, so I think it's important for us to understand why many of our objectives in Afghanistan failed. Why is the Taliban uh, arguably more powerful than ever before? Uh, and the correlation to that that I look into in my research is why has the drug trade uh, exploded over that time frame as well, uh, to the point where today over 90% of the world's supply of illicit opium comes from Afghanistan. So my real theme of my research is looking at whether those two things are related. And this is important for us, in my opinion, to continue to look at because, as I indicated, this conflict isn't going to end with our withdrawal. And the implications of that conflict uh, for the region and for the world, I think, will continue to be important. All drug trades by their nature are globalised. So even if the violence doesn't necessarily affect us in the short term, the drugs certainly will. Well, most definitely, I think um, you're making an extremely important point here that the war will end for us, but not for the Afghan people. Now, there is a body of scholarship out there, right, that highlights how the Taliban has leveraged the drug trade for their power, and you've already made this point as well. Um, what are some of the key factors that you see underpinning this so-called relationship? Yeah, so when I first looked at this problem, I assumed it was going to be all about money. Um, money, as we know, is the lifeblood of a rebel group. You need money if you're an insurgency or a terror group to be able to pay for weapons, supplies, even bribes. And most importantly, you need to be able to pay your fighters, particularly over a protracted conflict like this. So how does a rebel group get their financing? Uh, a drug trade is a pretty consistent and reliable form of financing. Um, and it's true that um, most of the financing from the Taliban, as far as we can tell, tends to come from this drug trade. Uh, that was a pretty obvious kind of finding that I was expecting to come out of my research. But I think the more interesting thing that I started to discover is that really this is all about power. And it's something that Van der Felber Brown refers to as the political capital model, whereby if you can exert uh, control or influence over a labor-intensive drug trade like the one in Afghanistan, by extension, you can exert that same control and influence over the people whose lives depend on that trade. And it's important to keep in mind that uh, close to 600,000 people in Afghanistan depend on this drug trade for their survival. And that goes to the heart of our understanding of counterinsurgency theory, because we assume that the link between the insurgency and the people is an ideological link that we have to break. But really, it can be far more pragmatic than that. It can be about economics. And if we don't understand that, we won't really understand how to defeat that insurgency because we're attacking it in the wrong way. I mean, that's, again, yes, another really important observation that this, well, the drug trade actually provides the Taliban with power over people. Um, and it would appear that a lot of current, the current strategies meant to counteract the Taliban have perhaps not truly appreciated this point. Yeah, I think that's certainly fair to say. Um, and I think it's mostly because we just didn't really understand these dynamics because they are complex. You know, we would go into these villages and we'd tell the people that we're there to protect them. Uh, and that is true. But at the same time, we were threatening their livelihoods because they knew that at any point that we could destroy the drug trade because uh, we knew that it was supporting the insurgency. And, and of course, it's against the law. So you can't really tell these people we're here to protect you and at the same time tell them that you're also threatening to destroy their livelihoods. It also um, helps us to understand the different dynamics of individual motivators and group motivators in these kinds of wars. Uh, some 
interesting work from people like Paul Collier, who I know you've worked with, and Hank Hoffler, looking at the greed and grievance dynamic, uh, which I found really interesting to understand that people aren't necessarily uh, entirely motivated by a grievance factor in these types of wars. More often than not, greed can be a really powerful motivator. And when you understand that and apply that lens to understanding how different people connect with that insurgency, I think it's really powerful in how you understand how to defeat it. Well, I mean, the greed versus grievance model um, has certainly had its fair share of critics with some people really worried about its dismissive, overall dismissive attitude towards grievances as a cause for rebellions and insurgencies. But here it sounds like you are taking a more nuanced perspective where you're saying it may well be a a mixture of both greed and grievance um, when it comes to the motivating factors behind the drug trade. Yeah, I think you've um, you really picked up on that, that it's greed and grievance, not necessarily greed versus grievance. Uh, I think one of the main criticisms of their work uh, is when people think it's a binary concept, uh, that people are only motivated by grievance or only motivated by greed. But I think, as we all know, uh, humans are far more complex than that. Uh, I think it's Pete Underwood who describes it as a spectrum, uh, and maybe that's a helpful way of looking at it. Uh, when I think about it, through my own lens uh, as an army officer when I deployed to Afghanistan. Um, certainly greed wasn't a, a primary motivator for me to deploy there, but at the same time, I was paid quite well for my service. Um, and I would be lying if I said that that motivation wasn't a part of my overall motivation. So I think you can easily apply those kind of things uh, to an insurgency or um, anyone working within those kind of rebel groups. I think the other controversy about that work is that if I told you that a farmer uh, who's growing these drugs in Afghanistan or even in uh, Colombia or Mexico is motivated by greed, that can be controversial because these are some of the poorest people in the world. Uh, But that is certainly a statement that uh, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime has even made about these farmers in Afghanistan because uh, they know that by growing these drugs, they are supporting the insurgency and that they are breaking the law. But they are still doing it because they know they can make more money growing these drugs than from traditional crops like wheat. So uh, while it is controversial to use a word like greed, I think it is really helpful for us us to understand those human dynamics. The other thing that I think uh, is interesting about this is where we start to see this blurring between crime and insurgency. And this is uh, really starting to get to the heart of my research, um, particularly as a former military officer. We certainly view insurgency as being within our remit uh, in a military, but we don't see crime as being in our remit for very um, obvious reasons. Uh, But when we start to see that blurring or that nexus between crime and insurgency, that's where it starts to get far more complicated for us. When we're working alongside police organisations like the Drug Enforcement Administration in the United States, who should have primacy uh, going against these types of groups when it's a blurring of a uh, politically motivated and an economically motivated group? Those are just some of the issues that we're working through at the moment. Right. So, I mean, again, you've raised such a variety of really interesting issues and questions here. And I'm going back to what you just said, which is kind of like um, acknowledging both the political and economic factors that underpin these groups and their behaviours. I was wondering to what extent have cultural challenges or cultural issues or dynamics also played into um, the kind of the the drug trade, but also the Afghan conflict? 
Um, have you seen any interesting cultural factors that may well have impacted on these greed and grievance dynamics? Yeah, and I mean, uh, the cultural factors in Afghanistan are fascinating. Uh, the Pashtun people in particular are an incredibly interesting society to study. Uh, in a lot of ways, they are very insular. Uh, they live by a passion uh, ethnic code. And in uh, a lot of ways, Afghan society can be quite fractured. It's not uh, controlled uh, at the centre. It's often controlled at the periphery by these micro-societies. So understanding those cultural factors and how a, a village in Afghanistan uh, is controlled and how the power dynamics work, I think is really powerful to understand. And we've really struggled with it because it's so different uh, from our own culture. Uh, Aisha Ahmed, uh, in her brilliant book, Jihad and Co., which I'd certainly recommend, she talks about the power of faith or Islam and religion uh, to establish trust in uh, war economies and even in illicit trades. And if you think about that in the sense of if you lived in a village where there was no rule of law, how do you establish trust in a business relationship, whether it's licit or illicit? Uh, if someone wants to rip you off, you can't go to the police to then get them to uh, enforce that business contract. And the same is true in illicit markets. So there's some really interesting discussions there about, well, how is that trust established? Uh, I think the cultural factors in a place like Afghanistan are really powerful to understand that because these micro-societies already have those frameworks for trust uh, well-established based on faith, based on uh, ethnicity or kinship. Uh, so understanding that and how we interact with those micro-societies as an outsider is really important. You've so far um, brought up what I would perhaps term a livelihoods perspective on how we might um, approach, understand, uh, tackle this, this issue of, of the illicit drug trade in Afghanistan. Um, and here you've also just mentioned the importance of trust and trust building, which we all know is extremely difficult to, to do and to achieve, especially in a very different society with unique sociocultural attributes. So is it fair to say that these economic, sociocultural and, of course, political factors combined are what has made the, the threat of the drug trade um, so very difficult to counter? Yes, yeah, certainly I think so. Uh, and going back to my own military background, um, when I first started writing about Afghanistan, this is the kind of thing that I was writing about, that my observation that uh, really the only kinds of uh, organisations that can work in these conflict areas are militaries. But by the same um, token, militaries are very um, ill-equipped to counter these kinds of threats because they transcend our traditional um, skill sets, right? Uh, militaries are not trained in how to establish um, jobs for a local population. They're not necessarily trained in how to work within a society and build trust and work with leaders and negotiate and understand those power dynamics. Uh, those are, are very difficult skill sets to learn and they're not necessarily things that uh, have ever been a priority for most militaries. So how do uh, we defeat these kinds of threats in the future? Uh, that is a really difficult question for us to understand because uh, we don't have many successes to point to. Well, I am going to ask you precisely that question, which is how should then, you know, given that we now 
have a better understanding of how these factors interplay and why they have made the conflict in Afghanistan so very complex. How should these dynamics really change our understanding of and approach to the Taliban then? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think, you know, a central theme of my research is about understanding who the Taliban are or were. Uh, we tend to just view them as a classical insurgency uh, and leave it at that. Uh, but there is a lot of interesting aspects to the Taliban as an organisation, if you can even refer to it as a homogenous, monolithic kind of organisation. You know, they obviously have elements that uh, act like a terror group. Uh, they also behave like a mafia, uh, particularly through the use of protection services, uh, which has strong parallels to the Sicilian mafia or the Russian mafia. Uh, and they also, to an extent, operate like a drug cartel. So who are they? Uh, and if we don't really know who they are and if we can't agree on who they are, how do we come up with a cohesive strategy to defeat them? I think that, was, that is probably going to be a key theme of my research, of, of one of my findings, uh, because it was so hard for us to try and understand this group that is uh, so dispersed, in some ways very fractured, um, and try to understand those individual and group motivations before we could even come up with a strategy to defeat them. Hmm. So can you give us like a preview of what your answer might be to that question of who is the Taliban? Yeah, look, um, in some ways, uh, you know, I'm quite uh, happy to admit that I haven't got a solution for this problem yet. You know, I, I don't think I probably ever will. Um, I view the Taliban very much like a mafia uh, in my lens at the moment. Uh, I see them as operating as like a series of gangs uh, that provide protection services. I don't see them as a drug cartel at this point, although they certainly could morph into one in the future, similar to the FARC in Colombia. Uh, so I see them as being far more motivated by those kind of greed dynamics than the grievance dynamic. I don't see them as this big monolithic um, army that's going to necessarily just completely overrun uh, Afghanistan once we leave. But I think they're going to continue to hold territory, particularly the territory surrounding uh, those 240-odd thousand hectares of drugs. That, to me, is the centre of gravity for them and the source of their power, and that's where they're going to continue to hold influence. Right. You made the point earlier about how militaries are not equipped with the skills needed to counter mafia groups or drug cartels at the domestic or grassroots level. Mm. Um, you also made the point that there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, coordination or collaboration between militaries and more local law enforcement mm. um, authorities, police and so forth. Mm. So I wonder... I mean, what can you see as being the important learnings perhaps that the military could take or the skills that the military could adopt from how law enforcement authorities have responded to um, the, the drug issues in Afghanistan? Yeah, I think an important part of my research is that it, um, it helps to change our perspective of what war is. Particularly Western militaries view war through a very Klaswitzian kind of model as a war must have a political purpose. But a lot of these kind of conflicts uh, today, uh, something uh, Mary Caldor often refers to as new wars, don't necessarily fit that model. Uh, why is it that we see Afghanistan as being in a state of civil war, but not Mexico, even though Mexico has uh, close to 3,000 murders every month? 
Uh, we don't tend to view Mexico as having a civil war because their conflict is purely economically motivated. It is a criminal, uh, drug-led kind of uh, conflict. Yet that can be more harmful to the state uh, and even its neighbours, including the United States, than some of the traditional conflicts that are politically motivated that we have spent most of our time focusing on. So there is interesting questions there about whether we need to revisit our understanding of what war is. Uh, it's certainly something that Sean McFate uh, has written about recently in his book, New Rules of War, uh, where he describes narco warfare as being more dangerous than terrorism. And I think in many countries in Latin America, they would certainly agree with that model, but it hasn't really uh, transcended to Western military's understanding of that threat. So in some ways, uh, in some countries, we're seeing a heavily militarized transition of police um, because they need to be militarized in order to be able to counter uh, these threats. But we certainly haven't seen that in countries like Australia. So understanding how that is changing the character of war, I think, is really important for us. And as you mentioned earlier as well, I mean, the drug trade um, is by nature globalized. Mm. So in terms of tackling this issue at the transnational level, um, how do you see that happen? Right. Uh, very, very difficult. <laughs> um, you know, uh, in some ways there is a lot of cooperation uh, for the international drug trade. Um but in others, it is difficult because the threat is so difficult to counter. The threat is so globalised. Uh, it's not as simple as a drug cartel in Mexico um, controlling every aspect of the value chain. What we're seeing is multiple groups across the world working together uh, in the same way that we see multinational companies working in order to get a product to the market. So we really need that international cooperation on so many different levels. Uh, and we briefly saw it in Afghanistan. Um, our own special operations task group worked with the Drug Enforcement Administration for the first time in order to counter this nexus between uh, these criminal entities and the insurgency. And I think we're going to see more of that. Well, I'm going to throw another big question at you here, mm -hmm. um, which is, and you've already touched on this, which, you know, what does all of this actually mean for the future of conflict? Um, in this region, and especially for organisations like the Australian Defence Force in particular, how can the ADF innovate in order to respond to these new um, and you know, non-conventional threats that we yeah. see in the world? Yeah, uh, another great question. Uh, so in my previous job in the military, I used to be a future warfare analyst, um, where we would research uh, particular topics that we thought were going to be disruptive to the future of war. And most of our focus tended to be on technologies. You know, we think about how artificial intelligence, for instance, or robotics is going to change the character or even the nature of war, if you want to go down that kind of argument. But uh, an equally interesting kind of question relates to the complexity of human condition. Um, because if we don't understand how humans are motivated and how that influences conflict, then that's really a first starting point to really understand how to counter it. So if wars are going to become more economically motivated, if that's an argument you wanted to go down, how does that change our approach to countering them? If we're going to be going up against more non-state actors that aren't necessarily politically motivated, how do we defeat them? There's really not a lot of technology that's going to help you to understand those complex human dynamics. 
So really it requires us to invest a lot more in the individual so that that individual soldier, sailor or airman or airwoman uh, deployed into those environments can have some type of understanding of those human dynamics and how to operate in that environment and achieve some semblance of success. Those are the real challenges that are difficult for us to um, come up with uh, solutions for other than more education. Well, I have to say, I very much appreciate your emphasis on human motivations and, you know, the the importance of humanity really in all of this. Um, it's such a prescient point as well to end this episode on because, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have. Um, but thank you so very much again, Gareth, uh, for your absolutely fascinating, if not sobering, insights. It's always a real pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for having me. I'd also. Uh, on that note, like to thank everyone who's tuning in to this podcast. Please keep an eye out for our next episode and let's stay informed, stay safe while we navigate uncertainty together. 